Namaste and good evening to all of you. Let us continue tonight with our exploration of the message of Jesus, the explanation from the standpoint of chakras, energies, principles, as far as we can understand these things. We are following the history of these actions according to the Gospel of Luke. And we had been in a difficult part for uh, three, four weeks. I've been going through paragraphs where Jesus was frontally accusing people that they were not thinking well. It started with the fact that he performed some healing and people thought that maybe he does it by the power of the devil because it's more easy to dismiss Jesus that he does something with the power of the devil and it's something which does not concern us than to say this is what God is doing and therefore we have to change our lives, we have to improve something in our lives. And so many, and he continues and continues, and Jesus gives some hard lessons on demonology. He shows how the interaction of negative forces is going on with human beings, revealing some scary mechanisms in which he says, well, you get rid of one of them, he's going and coming back with six brothers, and they all try to turn you down, and all that. So he is speaking about some continual conflict of sorts. And in the end, he changes a little bit the theme, and he accuses the people, he says, see... I heard some voices. Do I hear voices? Okay, sorry. There's no problem. Um, I just thought I'm hearing voices. So, um, he is telling to people that they are polluted by this demonic way of thinking, and he starts giving them a crazy parable where he says, even the queen of Sheba, who came to attend the wisdom of Solomon uh, more than 500 years before the life of Jesus, even the queen of Sheba will stand and accuse them at the judgment day because they were talking with somebody bigger than Solomon, who was Jesus himself, and they did not realize, they did not put effort into it, they, their hearts were not moved, they did not put aspiration in it. And he continues with a similar sentence, who says the men of Nineveh, this is another prophet story from the Old Testament of the city of Nineveh, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. The prophet Jonah told them a few strong words, and the people of Nineveh, they repented, they corrected their ways. And in a certain way, they fix their future. That's a fascinating story, but we don't need to go there right now. Um, and Jesus says, even the people of Nineveh will stand in judgment. Please understand, it's like he says, there is a sort of a ground zero. There is a sort of an average of humanity. Like in this humanity... Even the divine consciousness 
although it can, it absolutely can, because it can do anything it decides, it would not do a severe injustice. Such as Milarepa did yoga for 30 years eating grass, and he reached nirvana, and you are sitting and scratching your ass all day long, and you also reach enlightenment. Then it's like Milarepa, although he is not a selfish guy, he would stand up when your judgment is coming and saying, God, is it fair that I did 30 years of yoga every day and this one gets it like this? I'm just asking. But is it fair? Can humanity have such extremes? And thus, Jesus claims that there is a sort of a divine justice There is a sort of a divine fairness. And in the name of that fairness, even if the queen of Sheba and the men of Nineveh won't actually come at the judgment day of these people present there with him, but virtually they are there in Akasha Tattva, in the memory of the universe, in the memory of God and of Shambhala, they are there. And Shambhala would be ashamed to say that ah, the men of Nineveh did right and okay, they got something and this generation, they didn't do anything. They behave like total morons and somehow they are getting away with it. It can't be. It doesn't sound fair. It doesn't sound fair in a consciousness, in a universal consciousness which contains... Love, forgiveness, compassion, but it also contains the concept of justice, fairness, righteousness, and those. Those have not disappeared just because uh, there is another part of God which can at times manifest compassion or forgiveness or unconditional love or such aspects. That's why, as you can see, Jesus is making a mixture. He is not only going on uh, a single thing about Anahata. It's all something about Anahata. No, there is a divine Manipura. There is a divine Ajna. There is, and they exist. They cannot be switched off just because Jesus is often talking about Anahata. And therefore, the cosmic consciousness is very complex. And in the cosmic consciousness, there appears a sort of an implicit justice. It is possible that somebody got enlightenment in 10 years in the 20th century. And Milarepa could say, if he, but he will never say, but virtually somebody, the devil's advocate, would say Milarepa worked hard 30 years and this one got it in Kali Yuga with air conditioned and whatever in 10 years you know it's like and then shambhala or the angels of god may answer yes but in kali yuga the temptations the temptation to go to a cinema to read foolish books to waste your time with a lot of crazy stuff and so on the temptations are a hundred times bigger than at the time of milarepa so it's true that this person apparently got it easier, but there was some other price to pay. That person had to make a much more difficult choice than Milarepa had to do in his time.
And thus, there still, even when there are differences, and there are always will be differences and in individual circumstances, nevertheless, Jesus calls the attention on the fact that there does exist a universal fairness. And when you have put all factors into balance, then you will notice that there is a divine justice and that there is a divine fairness and that things are making sense. Things are not chaotic or absurd ever from the standpoint of the divine consciousness. And he comes to the next paragraph. It's actually, literally speaking, it's the same paragraph 11, quite a long one. But he goes to another topic. It's another subtitle. It's another sub-paragraph here. Because in the same speech, in the same trend, he continues by putting things... He, he wants to explain from another angle so that people will understand additionally. And he says, No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. It's, this is a well-known parable. I remember I have commented it a couple of seasons ago. And it's something which makes absolutely divine sense. He continues, instead, if somebody lights a candle or a lamp, instead he puts it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. It is fundamental that he repeats this teaching because it shows that in the world of the divine consciousness there also exists a certain kind of utilitarianism. I was making a little bit of fun in the Q&A a couple of days ago when I was saying, you know, if somebody is on a waiting list or on a runner-up list and the divine consciousness considers that now some grace is needed, then a certain person, man or woman, can receive that grace although they are prepared only 70% for the job. Like there can be that it's exactly like you need an engineer in a company and the best you've got is a technician who is very good at his job. And somebody up there says, let's put that technician as production engineer. He knows what he's doing. He knows the whole thing. He's not educated as an engineer, but temporarily we need a engineer to be down there and that one is the best. And the poor technician, he gets promoted to engineer suddenly because he is needed, because the company needs him. The same thing is happening in the divine world. Please don't forget ever the hermetic dictum which says, as above, so below. What is happening in the trite world of humans is nothing but a copycat of what is happening in the divine world. There is always a similarity. We are not inventing anything new. There is nothing new under the sun. We are just copying some patterns which already exist. And Jesus simply says, he repeats this formula, which says, if somebody reaches light, he says, no one lights a lamp. To light a lamp is the Buddhist equivalent of enlightenment. To light a lamp means to light your crown chakra up. 
And it's not that you light it, it's like the divine thinks about it, and the divine has the ultimate decision in this, but it's also about the human being. Like you are doing, let's say, one person in this room is making efforts to awaken their Ajna Chakra and their Crown Chakra. There is a crazy enough person in this yoga hall tonight who is trying to reach a high level awakening of Ajna and Sahasrara. Why? It cannot be an individual project because you are going to light a lamp. And when you light a lamp, there are consequences to lighting a lamp. Oh, you say, I didn't think about it. Then I would not want to be enlightened. Sure, stand down. Stand down while you still have time. Because if you turn it on, there are consequences to assuming that position. Like you say, I don't want to be an anonymous organ on this tree. I want to be a flower. Okay, but when you become a flower, there are consequences to become a flower. A flower also has some tasks and some responsibilities and a certain peculiar destiny. For example, a flower cannot last more than a couple of weeks. While, for example, the bark of the tree resists for a hundred years. It's the same bark. So the bark of the tree lives much longer than flowers, but flowers are much more visible and spectacular, and they have many other functions compared to the bark of the tree. So if you say, I want to become the next Buddha, you want to become a flower. But that brings with it also obligations and responsibilities. It's not just a whim. Oh, I know, bad thought. Let's not become a flower. You cannot take it back and do like, if you light a light, nobody hides it. Therefore, there will be a utility for that. It's like somebody says, I am making this ice cream composition and I am putting a drop of vanilla essence in it. Hey, you've put the vanilla essence in it. The vanilla essence can be felt till the end of the existence of that ice cream. You can't take it back. It's there. Nobody lights a candle to hide it. Thus, uh, Jesus is reminding about this thing that don't think that God is a, some sort of the cosmic consciousness is suprarational, which means it contains all the reason in the universe plus some things which the reason can never fathom or understand. But it doesn't mean it's irrational. Something which is suprarational is not equivalent logically with something which is irrational. Irrational means without reason, against reason, while suprarational means that it's 90% reason and on top of it there is something which reason can't even fathom. So, Jesus is confirming once more the fact that the divine consciousness has reasons of its own, is doing things for certain reasons of its own. And now he makes the crossing because he mentioned this thing with the lamp in another discourse, which I did comment not very long time ago, I think last season. And he says now he wants to move this metaphor by saying your eye is the lamp of your body. 
Here, this paragraph is translated. Uh, again, the translations are very slippery. It's very easy to put an S or to take an S from a word and instead of I to make it your eyes or your eye or this or that. Um, in the old languages where these things were written, not to mention that any translation of the Bible that we have today comes from Greek language, the oldest Bible still ever preserved in the human history is an old, old copy of the Bible in Greek language from the 4th or 5th century. I think 5th rather than 4th. And therefore, um, it's like a lot of little details of translation are very difficult in the Bible text and so on. Many people and great saints even who commented on this they were flabbergasted by the fact that Jesus doesn't say your eyes. Jesus apparently says your eye is the lamp of your body. And then he creates a sentence in which sometimes it's I, sometimes it's eyes. That is the classical, typical transition which Indian mysticism does between the two eyes which are reflecting your consciousness on Manipura and therefore your ego, your scientific judgment, and what Kashmiri Shaivism would call your objective consciousness, for those of you who did Kashmiri Shaivism, objective. And then one eye is this one in the middle of the forehead, is the eye of Shiva, which is the third eye, and where the human being does not experience duality, where the human being experiences a form of oneness. And therefore, in India, when you speak going from the eyes to the eye, that's a very well-known metaphor, which maybe Jesus had heard in his time, and he used it without necessarily calling attention to the origins of it. He may have used the same metaphor, because he says, your eye is the lamp of your body. But if you say your eye, it means your Ajna Chakra your third eye and the third eye is the carrier of the sixth element is the sixth chakra which corresponds to the sixth element which is nothing but the mind so in a certain way jesus says your mind is the lamp the lamp of your body as those of you who did level two in agama ever the first course in level 2, the laws of the mind, contains one of the laws of the mind which says your mind is the one which can absolve you and save you. Your mind is also the one that can condemn you and keep you into limitation. So it's as Jesus says, your eye is the lamp of your body. Your ajna is the lamp because your mind determines what you do with your life, how you think, how you die, the way you act, the resonance which you cultivate in your being. And therefore, this light that you turn on a light is very much to having something to do, first of all, with your mind taking the right direction. It starts from the mind. Spirituality is often Ajna and Sahasrara. 
you cannot always separate them like do one and not do the other it doesn't quite work this way it's the mind and the spirit which is above the mind if the mind is going in the right direction your life will go in the right direction it is Plot Plotinus the a Greek philosopher who is quoted even in your papers it's in one of the bright thoughts of your first level where Plotinus says the true intelligence is the one which separates the trite from the eternal and turns the mind towards what is important. There have been many, many intelligent people who, for example, have been demonic, atheistic, skeptical, cynical. Plotinus says those people were not yet very intelligent. They thought they were intelligent and maybe in terms of IQ or something, they had some sparks in their mind. But the real intelligence is not only the one which gives technical demonic abilities, but it is also the one which focuses the mind on what is essential. Because if you are intelligent and you waste your mind in pubs getting drunk all day long, it means you are not intelligent enough. You have some level of intelligence and maybe you have some slices of intelligence, but it's not the great intelligence. The great intelligence makes that a human being looks automatically on what is fundamental. I remember I saw once a documentary about intelligent people, some BBC, whatever, National Geographic documentary, and there they were inquiring of what do intelligent people do with their intelligence. And they noticed something, that people who go over a certain level of intelligence, they start not acting very technically or trying to exploit their intelligence for engineering, stock exchange, and other, you know, Bitcoin, and other things like that. They gave the example of the man who had the measured, at that time, the highest measured IQ in America. It was a guy who had, I think, 185 IQ, higher than Albert Einstein, <clears throat> higher than many others. And what he had done is that he had bought himself a farm in rural United States. He was growing chicken and whatever else, and he was living there together with his girlfriend, and he was not involved in anything smart or quick or technical or anything like this. And they asked him, and he said, well, since you assume that I am intelligent, we can also assume that I have looked at life and at people and at their destiny and at their future and at what makes people happy and where they get in the end. And I have chosen a very banal lifestyle for myself and those dear to me because to me, my intelligence tells me that that's the better choice for a human being on the face of this earth. So Jesus coming back, he speaks here apparently metaphorically. Many, many yogis have quoted this one, Yogananda and many others, by saying, your eye is the lamp of your body, but he means the one eye. And here, the translation, I could bring other translations of the Bible and compare them. I'm not interested in theological Bible scholarship. The next uh, sentence 
In this edition of the Bible says, when your eyes are good, your whole body also is full of light. But if the original text may be said, when your eye is good, and your whole body also is full of light, and the translator thought that it was a clumsy Greek, old Greek language, and it sounds more decent in modern English to say when your eyes are good, because you cannot say when your eye is good, uh, your whole body also is full of light. But that's because the person who may have adjusted the translation to make it sound good and decent is a person who never heard about the third eye and about the thing which I'm telling you here. If they would have known, they would have on purpose left it in singular, just showing that here there is a very strange double entendre which Jesus is practicing. So where Jesus continues by saying, your eye is a lamp of your body, when your eye slash eyes are good, your whole body also is full of light. Like if you look to the sun, light is coming into you. That simply says, you have to put your eyes in the right direction. Which means you have to think the right thing. You have to cultivate the right resonance. You have, even if you put it metaphorically that it's about the eyes, your eyes have to look in the direction of light. Yeah, but I was friend with a guy who was a professional thief, and he showed me that honest people are getting shit in this world. And ever since I have been a roommate with this guy for three years, you know what? I'm also, uh, I have also become dishonest. I don't believe in honesty anymore because I can see that the planet Earth is not a fair place and uh, uh, things are not going fair around here. And that's why, why should I be honest when everybody else is dishonest and the dishonest people eat the cake, eat the bigger part of the cake. This is a person who is not looking right is looking in the wrong direction, has been, it's a person who has been corrupted by something negative. It's exactly the opposite of a person who says, I am in a community, and in this community, 99 people out of 100 lie. And I am the one person who will always tell the truth. In sp- but you know, you are ridiculous, it doesn't work, you will be blamed, da-da, da-da, da-da. Yes. I am the one who will become the fool and the idiot of the village because I choose to simply do not adulterate the truth. Idealistically, I am the last dreamer. I am the last idealist in this village and I will keep that there. That's a person who is looking after a principle. Again, it's not to be taken literally so because even Jesus says that sometimes you have to hide some things. He says, let the right hand not know what the left hand is doing. He says, be you gentle as doves, but be you wise as serpents, wise as snakes, which involves a certain uh, savoir-faire, know-how. It involves a certain diplomacy. It involves a certain, the Chinese would call it wisdom, but what the Chinese call wisdom is not what the ancient Greeks called wisdom, that what the Chinese call wisdom is trickiness. When you say uh, Chong Tzu was a very wise man, it means he lied skillfully and he managed to uh, uh, find his way 
When he needed, he told the truth. When he needed, he lied. When he needed, he had some acumen. When he needed, he manipulated a little bit. When, and that was wise, because in the end, Chong Tzu won. That's a Chinese mentality, right? In other places, there can be a more perfectionistic mentality than that. And that's why he generally, he doesn't go into such details where I went, but he says, when your eyes are good, your whole body is also full of light. That means when the dominant resonance of your mind is positive, there comes light in your body. And that's, of course, a metaphor. You're not taking it like, hey, where is the light? Can we see it? It's a metaphoric light, and it means a lot of things. It means a lot of things. There have been people who lived in some very high spiritual levels, and they were living like in a different yuga, like the old Jewish prophets of yore, who lived 500, 600, 800, and even 900 plus years. Exactly in the same way, this having being full of light, it means being fed, being nourished by the high cosmic energies. And the high cosmic energies, you can say, yeah, but Swamiji... Even Swami Shivananda died when he was 73 or 75 or whatever he was. Most of the yogis, if you look at the history of the yogis of the last 200 years, most of them died somewhere around 60, 70, 80, 90. I think there was one or two who lived 100 years of age. But like their purpose was obviously not to extend their lifespan because we hear some legendary stories from yoga with yogis which were supposed to have lived unnaturally long periods of time. There is even a Christian saint, Mark of Ethiopia, who was living, who apparently lived alone for 90 years, and he became 138, according to the historical correspondences which are done about him. And thus, Jesus is not alluding only to a physiological factor. Many people tend to interpret these things Strictly physiologically. But to be full of light, it means so many other things. It means a resonance with the high frequencies of the cosmic energies. And the resonance with the high frequencies of cosmic energy does so many, so many, so many things. For example, the Tibetan yogis consider that no virus or bacteria can touch a person whose frequency of vibration is high. By the way of the present day paranoia with the coronavirus, which is in the end just a flu, which has the same rate of mortality as normal flu. It has the same rate of mortality with a normal flu. If a thousand people get it, 56 people die. That's the same about the common flu. The coronavirus is not more deadly than the normal flu. So that's why I say, if you ask Tibetan lamas, what should you do to stay healthy? They would say sublime, 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 sublime. Move your frequency in every day above Anahata Chakra. And since the virus frequencies are very low, you will be like transparent to them. They will not stop at you. The Tibetans, when the parts of Tibet were 
threatened by cholera, smallpox, and other heavy epidemics which killed people, they used to do exorcism. They stopped smallpox, not by washing the hands, or by soap, or by vaccines, because there were none in those days, but by exorcism. They considered smallpox a demon. And therefore, what a completely different vision. And Jesus, who had a mute man and took a demon out of him, Jesus would have done the same. So Jesus is very much into this, cultivate a certain amount of purity. But when they are bad, or if the view vision, if the resonance is bad, your body also is full of darkness. That is up to you to think what, how is your mind. I tell it all the time when we do it, the Christmas and New Year retreat. I had a guru from whom I learned about this Christmas and especially about the New Year meditation. And already starting around the 10th of December, this man was going in a different mode. And at some point, either I or a good friend of mine, who were asking our teacher 10 questions every day, like we were bombarding him with questions because we wanted to learn as much as possible. At some point, we asked him a question, something about sexual continent, some about the mechanism, something which was about Muladharas, Vadistana, Manipura, and he simply turned to us and he said, friends, ask me after the 1st of January, because I am preparing for the New Year's meditation, and I don't want to put my mind in the lower chakras to investigate and answer questions about these things. Like this man for 20 days was refusing to think even for yoga purposes, he was refusing to think about lower things. If your eye is looking in the right direction, you will be full of light. And then if your eye is looking in the wrong direction, in the, in the parable book called The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari, where Robin Sharma is trying to inspire people with spiritual rules about how to apply them to the world of business, he applies the same thing, He know, knowing it, he tries to transfer it to business. And the imaginary character, the monk who sold his Ferrari, in his book, he tells to his apprentice, if you want to have a successful business, you should not think about the fact that it could fail or entertain failure thoughts, not even for a second. And the disciple is not like Milarepa, he's just a normal businessman, and he says, but sir, we are human beings, our mind is going here and there, and now you are, it's kind of superhuman to ask me not to think that I could flunk. And the guru shrugged his shoulders and he says, that's why not everybody is like Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and Bezos and the likes of them. Because everybody is complaining that they are just human. Well, if you are just human, you'll never make it to the top category. To make it to the top category, you have to have a shameless mind which does not doubt and does not look back and does not generate negative frequencies. Period. It's like 
If you are weak, you die, you lose. No mercy for the weak. You want to become top of the top, you have to respect very strict rules of the game. Jesus here is not talking about business. He is talking about your own resonance and your own spirituality. And says, if your eye is bad, it will bring darkness in your system. So don't look at bad things. Avoid the bad things. If you are a person that has a lot of negative karma, a lot of negative thoughts, a lot of negative resonance, a lot of bad luck, a lot of negative coincidences and synchronicities, a lot of internal struggle, a lot of suffering, emotionally or in other ways, then it means your eye is half clean and half dirty. And the half dirty is pouring in your aura dirty frequencies. And that's why you know all that Ramakrishna, Yogananda, and other and other ideal disciples, they cultivated at least for a period of their lives, and at least for the time when they were beginners and they were building things up, they cultivated an extreme purity. An extreme purity. They were like shy young novice monks in a monastery, you know, not saying one harsh word, not trying to think one harsh thing, trying to not be rude, trying to not be like this and like that. They were. The people are going to say, but Swamiji, I think in the present lecture, or at least in the last week, we heard you say fuck about seven times in one lecture. You know, and you want us to be pure like Yogananda? Yes, because you are not sitting where I am sitting. Your problem is different from my problem. That's why in Christianity they have the joking expression which says... Do what the priest tells you to do, not what the priest does himself. In Christianity, that work is because the priest, the priest is not a guru. The priest is just a transmitter of some Bible information, and priests are not built or educated to be gurus in Christianity. In India, it's a completely different story. The guru and the priest are not at all the same thing. The priest is like the Brahmin from India. The Guru is something else. So here, Jesus is giving a very high standard. He says, if you are loaded with difficulties, and you say, every day I feel like quitting yoga. Every day I feel like I can't believe in God. Every day I feel that I want to kill myself. Every day I feel this or that. It means your eye is swallowing a lot of darkness. Your eye, metaphorically speaking, we speak about the third eye as the mind, your eye is drinking poison. You have partly, at least, partly, at least, you have resonances which are deeply depressive, deeply impure, and people say, so what should we do? You should become puritanic. You should imagine that you have gone into an, some Amish village, 
and you live with the Amish. And there is not this and not this and not this and not that. Yeah? Don't worry about the fact that Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh made a 10 minute joke about the word fuck in English language. Because you are not at the level of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Please realize that this story is a different story. Shiva, when he was provoked by a terrible demon, that demon came and not only that he destroyed and did and so on, but in the end he came to Shiva and he said, and it's about you Shiva, give me Parvati, I want to fuck her. That's where the red line had been crossed. And in the next moment, a monster emerged from the third eye of Shiva, called Kritikimuka, the face of glory, something which the universe started shaking at the view of. Like the mind of Shiva contains hell as well. And if you want to prick Shiva a little bit, so he shows you hell, oh, he can show you hell more than you have ever dreamt about, because God is the master of heaven and hell at the same time. So Shiva can produce a lot of darkness if that darkness he considers it's necessary. Exactly as the poison of the cobra can heal many, many diseases and it even can be an antidote to the bite of another cobra. Therefore, uh, the people who have crossed a certain line, they may play a little bit with this. Even Jesus, I don't know if here, if I'm about to say this, or, but Jesus himself, you see that he's critical, vehement, accusing, insulting people, threatening people. And there is an episode, which again, I think I read the last season, where Jesus is burning down, drying down with divine power, not with fire, a bush, a little tree. He finds a tree which is corrupted and he hits it with his stick and the tree gets dry. Jesus kills a tree. But Jesus is the master of heaven and earth and hell and everything. Jesus is, he says that he is God. And being God, he is the Alpha and the Omega. And therefore he can exert everything. He can exert any force of the universe with impunity because it's something else. But in the moment when you are not like Jesus and your life is full of darkness and the results of darkness, those of you who, started, who studied with Agama, the text about the three gunas, remember there is there a table where it says the three gunas and the effects which they produce in the human life. And the Rajas guna, Tamas guna, they produce pain, 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 and pain again of different kinds. And therefore, in the moment when you are in such a personal predicament, Jesus simply says, clean your mirror, clean your eye, look in the right direction, move into a monastery, move into an Amish village, Take a vow of purity and puritanism because your eye is pouring in your system both nectar and poison. And you simply don't want to stop that poison. You don't want to stop it and then you complain that you are suffering. So remember what Jesus said. 
Those who live by the sword shall perish by the sword. Remember in Christianity itself, as well as in the Kshatriya environment from India, and as well as in the Samurai environment of Japan, there have been many spiritual people who lived by the sword, knowing that they shall perish by the sword. But it was their Dharma, it was an assumed Dharma, and they simply said, it's my duty to do this part of the work with God. I'm going to handle something dangerous, and therefore I'm going to put myself into danger's way. It was assumed, like I know from the beginning what my path is going to be or could be. But if you are not prepared to take pain, then Jesus is taking you, telling you very clearly, you should become as pure as Ramakrishna was when he was 17 years old. You should become an angel. You should purify totally and in all the respects. And then your eye will fill you up with light. And there will not be, the, the darkness will diminish in six months and in a couple of years. And then there will be another life, a brave new life. This is what it depends on. The mind is the, the helm of your boat. See to it, then, that the light within you is not darkness. This can be interpreted both that the darkness does not take over the light. How many people have I known in my life who pretended they were people of light? How many crazy examples have you not heard in the world of yoga in the world of Christianity, in the world of Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, and those people became terrible, terrible. Like when the truth was exposed in the end, the truth was shocking, appalling. Jesus says it very clearly. It's not about what you say or profess. It's not about the mask or the personality. He says, see that the light within you is not darkness. It's a very well-known thing. It was known, it was revealed a hundred years ago. Now somehow it became politically correct in another way. It was known that in Christian church, Catholic, Orthodox, the main ones, in the Christian church, the people that were really spiritual they were isolated and persecuted sometimes in monasteries. And the people who became bishops, archbishops, cardinals or metropolitans, and popes or patriarchs, they were just politicians. And most of them were not even believing in God. Most of the dignitaries of the Christian church were atheistic. Some of them were part of Freemasonry and other secret societies. Most of them were in high political clubs and mixed up with big money and other things because they were actually not even true believers. But as politicians, they were perfect. They were twisting everybody around their finger. So I could insist so much in that direction, but Jesus says it clearly, see to it that then that the light within you is not darkness. 
because sometimes the darkness is taking over the light. It has been seen with the hippies. In the hippie generation, you have had people like Oscar Ricciazzo, Ram Das, Richard Alper, and others and others um, who became uh, gurus, who are very much uh, studying with Swami Satchitananda, with Chogyam Trungpa, with this, with that, and so on. And then the hippies died, so to speak, as a time, and the society turned miraculously to the pendulum opposite, the yuppies. From hippies to yuppies, you know, it's like money became very important, Lululemon became important, business became important, living posh and so on became important, and the, the funny thing is known, it was known, most of these famous hippie guys, if they did not reach states of samadhi, case in which they had a different future, but very few of them really reached states of enlightenment, most of them, most of these Krishna Dasas, Ram Dasas, and a thousand others, Bhagwan Dasas, and Oscar Ichazos, and so on, they became multi, multi, multi millionaires, and they became basically yuppies that were hypocritically pretending they were still hippies. But they were like Paul McCartney, you know? They were billionaires already, and there was a different story being played there. So, uh, this is one very sad thing, that when you mix light with darkness, that's why some people are so puritanic and they say, I don't want any darkness. They say, maybe you Swamiji, maybe you have saved your soul or something, and you feel safe where you are. But I, as a beginner, I want to be more Catholic than the Pope. No, like maybe you, I don't know, can eat, uh, or as I was joking the other day, maybe you can drink a Sprite from time to time. I shall not touch that shit. I simply shall not, because I don't want any darkness. I want to be fanatically and as much as possible focused on the positive, because... Any darkness is bringing extra weight on my shoulder. Any darkness is bringing extra spiritual tests, extra challenges, extra pain, extra negative energies in my life. And I can hardly climb the mountain the way I am. I don't need any extra weight to it. So Jesus is very right because... That is a tendency. The people who have spent a lot of time in spirituality and who have not reached the final results, they become bitter. In Romanian we say they become sour, like sauerkraut, you know, they fermentate, they become putrid, they rot, because it's like a disappointment. I have tried to give myself to God for 30 years and I'm still an old boring man living in a monastery. And then something in you goes, you are an idiot. You wasted your life. Maybe you should get quickly 5-10 blowjobs before you get too old and you can't even get blowjobs. Maybe you should make some money. Maybe you should try some booze. Maybe you should do this and that. 
because apparently with the spirituality you fucked up. I have seen so many old monks and nuns in so many monasteries of different denominations whose life was a fiasco and they had crossed this line of bitterness. Like, you know, I didn't get anything. Who can guarantee that I should keep another 10 years? Or, But that's what the Dalai Lama says. You should never give up. Never, never, ever. You never give up because it can be a test. That moment where you bend, where you buck under the pressure, it can be exactly the moment six months before your enlightenment. The last test from God who says, let's see if you are ready to give up. Like Job, who became poor, sick, without family and all the rest. And he resisted. That's why we don't know how fast this kind of spiritual tests can go. And that's why a person who has decided to take the spiritual path, theoretically they should never give up. Never give up. Because you always can suspect, if I give up, maybe some darkness entered into me and stained my mind, and then my decisions have become corrupt or unhealthy. Jesus sees through existence and he says, see to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Either that the darkness is not increasing and overwhelming the light and make you change your decisions. When I was in a state of grace and lucidity, I took the decision to give my life to Shiva. And then 20 years later, I'm doing some other shit. How does it come? Because 20 years ago, when I was in that state of consciousness, I was sure you could open my veins and drain the blood out of my veins, and I would not have steered to the left or to the right an inch. I was ready to put my life in it. And now 20 years later, I am I don't even talk about it because it would make me feel guilty or dirty. So I'm even avoiding the subject and I always have some very good excuses for it. But the truth is that my light has become darkness because darkness has poured in every day and it has become 51% in my internal forum. Or the second meaning, which I commented already, in which light, it can be light because you pretend it's light and it's a hypocrisy, but actually it is darkness. It is completely an illustration of the dirty politics of the Catholic Church that they have started since 100 or 150 years ago. The absolutely ridiculous custom that they automatically declare all the popes as being saints. Because most often the popes are some of the most far away from being saints. To be a pope, you don't need to be a saint. On the contrary, you need to be totally not a saint and totally manipulating and doing a lot. You need to be a politician. You need to be oily and tricky and, uh, you know, attract sympathy and do a lot of other things which many saints have never done. That's why 
I'm saying, you know, you can say, oh, but uh, what about John Paul II? There is a whole propaganda industry that has worked for 50 years or 30 years to create an image to John Paul II. You don't know. I'm not saying that I know, but then I'm challenging you, do, if you really want, study Raja Yoga, develop your third eye, and develop the power which the yogis, which Patanjali calls Samyama, to perform direct telepathic identification with anything and anybody. And then take one of the popes that you think was very spiritual, and do Samyama with them for three hours every day, and in one month you will know what I'm talking about. No? That's why I'm saying Jesus here uses this double entendre because the light can be overwhelmed by the darkness or the light can be a pretense and actually there can be a lot of darkness. Remember the beautiful movie, those of you who saw it already, the agony and the ecstasy about the life of Michelangelo, that Michelangelo was goaded mercilessly by a pope who, if you read his life, he was a total asshole. He was a warmonger, a super manipuristic, unpleasant person. And in the end of the life, the Pope says to Michelangelo, you know, when I will be in front of St. Peter, I'm going to throw your chapel in the, to the judgment. You know, maybe it will save me to a certain extent. No, because he knows I am an asshole. I don't deserve to go to paradise. What about being a saint? Forget about being a saint. At least being an average person who will go to the 50% bright side, you know, to be one of the 50% who crosses the line in the positive way. He says, even that I probably will not, because he knows what kind of person he has been and what life he had. And he said, maybe if I tell them, look, I forced Michelangelo to paint the Sistine Chapel. And then Peter will say, okay, 10 extra good points for you in the book of life. You know, it's like maybe with those you can promote and go to paradise. No? Like what, what about being a saint? It's far, far from that. The Pope was considered to be lightness. But most of the Popes have been terrible darkness when you study the history of a church like the Catholic Church and many others. Therefore, if he continues this wonderful parable, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be completely lighted as when the light of a lamp shines on you. He means like that's a complete enlightenment. That's why Buddha also calls it enlightenment. To be in light. It is very important to think about this and to think because yoga doesn't put it as clearly as that. Yoga says you should practice yama and niyama. You should practice kriya yoga. You should purify yourself. And then many people can become negligent. If we would be an ashram of kriya yoga, or if we would be, I don't know, some ultra-orthodox Hindu school of practice, and definitely... If we would not be a tantric school where methods of a completely different order are permissible because in tantric yoga the tables are being turned from certain standpoints, then people would have to choose. 
Many people would go into an Indian ashram or in a Christian monastery and then they would come out and say, I couldn't stay there. It was all very too, too much puritanic. So what's wrong with puritanism? Why can't you try for a year or two or twelve to be very puritanic? Don't let yourselves cheated by the environment. To be pure, to be full of light, to have as little darkness as possible is a very worthy goal to entertain and keep it. I am openly telling you and the whole world through this satsang, cultivate it. Cultivate it. So this is a wonderful paragraph about positive resonance, negative resonance, Ajna Chakra, direction in life, and all those things. And the paragraph continues. When Jesus had finished speaking, so all this was a long, long speech, in which so many ideas have come up, a Pharisee invited him to eat, invited him to eat with him. So he went in, and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. You know that today, in English language as well as in almost every other Western language, when you call somebody a Pharisee, you don't mean that it's a sect of Judaism. A Pharisee is a person who is a hypocrite, a person who is practicing external uh, rituals and pro forma, but who inside may be very corrupt and very wrong, but you are a Pharisee, a Pharisean. You know, like Phariseeanism is uh, this sort of mask, false mask. So this man was a fanatic of rituals, and one of the Jewish 836 rituals, or whatever many there are, was that when people eat, should wash hands. Which, of course, is good even for the coronavirus. Like, you should wash hands. It's not that Jesus is against hygiene. But there were Christian saints who never washed their body for 30 years. Never. They lived in the desert. That means in heat and sweat. And their body was smelling like incense. Witnesses who came close to them. They found them naked. Hairy. Unwashed. And smelling of incense. Because in their body. There was happening an alchemy. A transmutation. Their body was full of light. And even the physiology of the body. Was changing. The Brahmacharya, the sublimation of the sexual energy, the cosmic energy, the prayer, the communion with angels and with God was producing such profound transformations, even in their body, that some of them, several of them, have been witnessed to be like, whoa, out of this world completely. And that's why... Jesus was not against hygiene. Jesus 
was divine. And being divine, for Jesus this feeling of impurity, that oh my God, you've touched the handle in the bus, and now the handle in the bus has a lot of bacteria on it, you should go home and wash your hand. That's what you teach your children, and it's correct. But when you are like Jesus, bacterias could not live on the hands of Jesus. Or if they lived, they lived because he was the God of all the creation, and it was a different story altogether. And thus, Jesus apparently several times is accused that he was like negligent about uh, elementary hygiene, and especially about this ritualistic hygiene. He was, he was indifferent. He was above it. He was not paying too much attention to it. Then the Lord said to him, because Jesus could see that the guy was looking in a skewed way, and he's like, uh, uh, he didn't wash hands, you know. And Jesus said another fanatic, another obsessed guy. And he told him directly, he says, now then, you Pharisees, Clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who make the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor and everything will be clean for you. So Jesus is saying what we say in a very materialistic way when we start teaching you Kriya Yoga, that it's okay to wash your hands and this, but washing your tongue, washing the inside of your mouth, washing your nose, washing the inside of your eyes, not only the outside of your eyes, and then going deeper, washing your stomach, washing your intestines. These are also very... This is inside in a limited way. Is inside literally speaking and of course if your hands are clean it's one benefit and if your intestines and stomach are clean probably the whole health benefit for you is 10 times or 100 times bigger so if you have 5 minutes to clean one part of your body you should clean the inside not the outside because you are more efficient time wise and health wise and it's more important Ah, if you have enough time to do both, sure, why shouldn't you do both? But here Jesus, he's using inside in terms of the astral body and mental body. He says you are doing ritual and external cleanliness. And he says it clearly, inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Which means full of negative emotions, full of negativity. And that is generating a horrible resonance. Your eye is full of darkness. Your eye or eyes are full of darkness. And that's very regrettable. So, being in the house of this guy, he starts insulting him. He says, you Phariseans are like this. And others... Even poor people who are not as hypocritical as you, then you could reach some cleanliness, but you don't have. And then he goes hard. He says, woe to you, Pharisees. See, Jesus is not nice sometimes. Imagine that he comes to 
he visits, I don't know, let's take a country which is probably not represented here, Iceland. Is there any Icelander here? So imagine that Jesus is visiting an Icelandic person in Iceland, and right there when he notices something, he says, Woe to you Icelanders, because you will all go to hell. Not very diplomatic, this Jesus. Full on. Full on. And he doesn't care if he is, uh, you know, not uh, if people don't feel good in his presence. At least he does his duty. He does his dharma that he has to show people what is right and what is not. And he says, woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue and all kinds of garden herbs but you neglect justice and the love of God. The Pharisees practiced rituals. One ritual which is famous in Kabbalah, and even modern Kabbalists advise people to do, and it was kept in Christianity, and I advised many yoga teachers to do it when we taught yoga in our TTCs, is what Christianity later called tithing. And tithing means that of everything you make, up front, not after tax, up front you put one tenth and give it away to God or to something which for you represents God. Mother Teresa in Calcutta, a church, an orphanage, Oxfam in Africa, something which you consider that that is if I give to this is as if I give it to God. Tithing. I am advising it. Tithing is an excellent method for creating both prosperity, abundance, because you are telling to your subconscious mind that you make more than what you need. And therefore you can always, uh, for people say, but I did tithing this week and I didn't have enough food. I had to go in Oshava diet, you know. I was eating just boiled rice. And that's like a hypocrisy, you know, because I pretended that I am abundant. Your subconscious mind will create abundance out of that resonance. Just be patient and see. The Kabbalists who invented this, they were very smart. Very smart. Tithing is one of the smartest things that you can do. You take one-tenth and give it to God unconditionally. Up front, one-tenth from your raw income, not from your netto profit. One-tenth from, from everything, you give it. So, Jesus is saying, you do tithing, and you give rue and all kind of garden herbs. It's interesting that Jesus mentions this rue, the Syrian rue, because it's a very special herb which was used for the blessing of the dead people, the Islamic people, use it, they burn it in funeral ceremonies, in graveyards, for giving uh, some blessing to the people who are passing in the astral world. But he says, so you do this and this, he gives two examples, he means a uh, hundred other things, but you neglect justice and the love of God. It is very, very important. Jesus sees through people's hypocrisy and he says you have to understand spirituality into its spirit, not to the letter, not the artificial rules and regulations, 
that Jesus didn't wash his hands. He didn't wash his hands and then he's stretching one of those unwashed hands and say, may you be healed. And then the person is healed. What's the problem that it was done with an unwashed hand? That unwashed hand of Jesus is made of pure light. It's made of quanta of divine spirit, of Holy Spirit. That's, you know, you cannot judge Jesus by some ritual rules like this. And he tells them, you are so hypocrite that you think that you do the things a la lettre. And then when it comes to the real important things, like he mentions here, the principles, the immortal principles, which don't take justice and the love of God, the real core of the matter, then he says, that one you are lacking. It's exactly what I read in Mahashivaratri when I said that Apinava Gupta and Utpaladeva, they laugh that there are people who think that if they imitate Shiva and they do some asceticism, they are going to reach where Shiva reached. But they say those people have no love. And the only thing they manage to do, they manage to torture their body and they manage to do just some grotesque exhibitionism in the end because it's not done with a proper spirit. Jesus says, you Phariseans, you lost the spirit somewhere along the way and you just stick to the external shells of it. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. You should have practiced the latter, the justice and the love of God, without leaving the first undone. He doesn't say, you should say, oh, we practice the love of God and the justice, so we don't do tithing anymore. You should keep the tithing. You should make the offers. But you should not lose the core. The core is essential. When Nioiti Sakurazawa, called George Oksava, founded the science of macrobiotics, the famous yin and yang style of diet, he wrote a couple of fundamental books. One of them which was called Macrobiotic Zen, like to do Zen through diet. And the other one was called the principle of the, and the philosophy of the medicine of the far east, where he spoke about yin, yang, and all these things. And in one of those two books, he gives the quota, the factors which influence healing. And there are seven factors. One of them, which is usually mentioned first or last, depending on the author, one of them is 55 or 60, I forgot, points out of 100. Diet, this, that, good physical activity, each one of them has 5 points, 10 points, 15 points. But one of them alone has 55 or 60, which is by the majority already. Like that one, if you don't have it, you cannot heal a cancer with macrobiotic diet. That factor is called according to different translations, if they come via French or directly via English, it's called justice or righteousness. 
like George Oksava says, the main thing which heals you is living in justice, living in righteousness. Healing, like for the Pharisees, it's not only about rituals and giving the tithing, which are important, beautiful things. It's about justice and the love of God, the core. That is the core of the whole thing. And he continues again. He, he will give them woe no less than six times. He's in the house of a Pharisee and he goes, Whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, like, why did you invite me in your house? You know, it's like, why did I invite you in my house so that you offend me directly? Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. This social thing that we are important. We have a special seat in the synagogue. We are an important member of the community. Like the British aristocrats who were sitting in front of the church. They had a special pew of the family. Jesus simply dislikes this arrogance, this vanity. This, you know, he woes them. He says, woe to you Pharisees, because uh, with your hypocrisy, you have come to look like you are very religious and important members of your community, and people have given you golden seats in the synagogue, and you are having special greetings in the marketplaces, you know, like you are proeminent citizens. And he says, you should be the most anonymous the most humble in the society. You should make yourselves invisible. You should not long for honors, name and fame. You should aspire to be nobody. You should aspire to be anonymous. Then you will earn the love of God. And he goes on unleashed. Woe to you because you are like unmarked graves which men walk all over without knowing it. Now, like, is there something sacred about graves? You should not walk over graves because somebody is buried there. But when graves are unmarked, people don't know and they may walk over it thinking it's nothing there. No? So, Jesus is putting them down. He says, you are zero. You are like unmarked graves. Shambhala will walk over your graves without caring. You present no importance. You are important only in your own eyes. What a disappointment will be in your heart when you will discover that you have lived a useless, hypocritical life in which you just have been snobbish and vain. And so what? One of the experts of the law answered him. This was a Jewish community, of course, so somebody had to have some manipura and to say, you come in our house and you fuck with us. And he told him, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Like that would have made Jesus stand back, you know, it's like, if I'm insulting you, oh, oops, sorry. I never wanted to be so rude as to insult you, you know. Like, of course, Jesus was doing it in full awareness, hoping to get 
a reaction. If he would insult a hundred Pharisees, and one of them would become humble and spiritual, Jesus would consider that he had a victory. At least I saved one soul out of a hundred in that miserable group of people. So he is unleashed, he is unabashed, he is not uh, afraid to give it the whole hand. Jesus replied, And you, experts in the law, so they were not only Phariseans, they were the others, what were they called? The scribes, I think, or something. The ones which were more the theoreticians, the metaphysicians. The Phariseans were extolling how much they did their duties. And the leaders of the law, they were the theologians, the scribes, the other sect, another sect of Judaism, closely related to this, who were, um, they said, you know, if you want to know something about what God wrote, the people who are writing the Talmud and all those things, you know, the people who consider themselves really, really smart. And Jesus replied, and you, experts in the law, woe to you. Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. And you yourself would not lift one finger to help them. Because the experts of the law, they kept on finding it. I read somewhere in Jewish literature that people at the time of Jesus to be called Kadosh, to be called holy by the Orthodox Jewish laws, they had to fulfill something like, 800 different requirements every day. They had to do this prayer and this prayer and this prayer. They had to not do this thing on the Sabbath day, to do this thing. That. They had a whole plethora of things. And those things, they were invented in time. Many of them, they came through the Talmud, through the Torah, through the different other commentaries in which they were not originally from the Pentateuch, from the five books in the Bible, and so on and so on. They were smart rabbis who said, uh, here you need to have an explanation. And they gave such explanations which made one more requirement. So therefore, from this explanation, you realize that in every morning you have also to do this. And they came to 800 requirements. And he says, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. Like if you want to be a God-loving religious person in that Jewish environment, you have to become a maniac. You have to become an obsessive compulsive personality. Focusing only on tiny little boring rituals, sometimes meaningless, senseless things all day long. And he says, and you yourself will not lift one finger to help them. Like there is no compassion. There is no contribution. Like what can we do to make that more of our brothers and sisters reach salvation? No, they are not interested in that. They are interested in making more commentaries, splitting the hair even more. So Jesus says, what kind of teachers do you pretend that you are? Because a teacher has to teach a child to write sticks and curves and letters and you know and you have to help the child hold its hand with your own hand and do it the first 20 times until the child learns the coordination like a teacher has to 
really be there for the student one way or another? How, what would you say if your yoga teachers would just throw some knowledge at you and go and let you do it? Your yoga teachers are practicing yoga with you for hours in hot temperatures sometime. They do because that's what they have learned in Agama. You have to do it. If you are a teacher, you have to teach with your own body, with your own example, with your own chakras, with your own being. You have to be there. So Jesus says, you, the teachers of the law, everybody thinks you are the cherry on top of the cake. And if somebody knows the law, it's you. You are the teachers. You are the scholars. And actually you are completely without a heart and without compassion. And you are lost into some intellectualism which turns life into hell for people. So he would, the people say, but you insult us also. Yeah, sure, I'm glad you reminded it. You teachers of the law, woe to you also. Woe to you, he goes on unleashed. Because you built tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. Incredible. Incredible. No? It, it, isn't it the truth? Like how many saints and mystics have been tortured, persecuted, killed, and now people are building tombs for them. Like Saint Peter, who was Jewish, he was killed in Rome. By whom? By the Romans. And now the Romans build him a fine tomb. The Saint Peter Basilica in the middle of the Vatican. But they killed him. The Romans killed Peter. So Jesus says, uh, when the prophets are dead, suddenly they become politically useful. You say, oh, but Elijah, yeah, here is the tomb of it. But your grandfather, your grandparents killed Elijah. You forgot to say that little thing. And now suddenly, when Elijah is not alive, and he cannot point fingers at you, suddenly you are respecting Elijah. People respect Jesus, but they have assassinated him. The Greek people will show you something about the tomb of Socrates, but they poison Socrates. Why did they poison Socrates and now they don't live in shame over it and put ashes over their head and say we are the descendants of the assholes who killed Socrates. Because they make you believe that if Socrates would come again, he would be treated nicely this time. He would be killed twice as fast as 2000 years ago. He would become insufferable very quickly. Very quickly, imagine that Socrates would say something which is politically incorrect. God behave that he speaks something about sexual orientation or something like this. Suddenly he is the public enemy number one. He is the most terrible, odious person in that time. Nobody cares if he tells the truth or not. So... Jesus is true. We live in a world full of hypocrisy. He says, now you are using the prophets for religious capital. 
like oh here is the tomb of Elijah mm. hallelujah Elijah. but your grandparents killed him and if you would have been there you would have killed him also and now you pretend it's okay he's okay because he is not alive but Jesus says I who am alive and who is Sticking your nose into your own shit. Me, you don't like. Oh, Elijah was good. Because he's dead. You can say anything you want about Elijah. Because he can't answer. Through the laws of God. He cannot come back from the dead and contradict you. He accuses how finely Jesus sees through human hypocrisy. And he says, Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets. And it was your forefathers who killed them. How many of the caliphs of Islam have been killed by other Muslims? Muslims killed Muslims until they made a bloodbath. And now they have the tomb of Ali and the monument of this. But who killed them? Your own grandparents, your own great-great-parents. So why don't you first sort out that crime, that impurity which is forever there, and that is staining everything. You cannot become clean with Elijah. You cannot come clean, clean with Elijah, pretending that you forgot that your own people have done misery. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in His wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. This he quotes from ancient prophets who knew this. You are going to say, Swamiji, do we live in a sick world only because we live in Kali Yuga? 20,000 years ago, that was not the case. But we don't know what history was happening 20,000 years ago. In Kali Yuga, after the flood of Noah, in the last 5,000 years, 6,000 years, the history of the earth is full of this misery, which the Jewish prophets, speaking with the voice of God, they put it clearly like this. You don't need to go further than this paragraph to understand that this is the law in Kali Yuga. I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. God said that. There's a prophet who said, I hear God, that he says that, and he put it on paper. Meditate deeply. What kind of world do we live in? And how quickly should the golden age come and put an end to this miserable period of human history. And he draws the conclusion, this is longer, I will stop somewhere in the middle of this, therefore this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. What? Jesus simply says, now, because I am here, there will be some accounting. 
That's all? No, Jesus later or somewhere else says, there will be my second coming. And when there will be the second coming, that will be the final accounting. That will be the end of Kali Yuga and the final accounting. But Jesus says, now, because I, Jesus, the Son of God, have been born for 33 years in this country, there is going to be some audit. There will be some audit for whatever has happened in this land in the last 1,000 years. There is a semi-final accounting, an audit, half of the year audit. And then when I come the second time, that's the final line. And then there is nothing goes on. So Jesus is very scary in this. And he sticks to the experts of the law. He had three woes for the Phariseans. And now he has three woes for the scholars. Woe to you, the sixth and the last of the woes. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who are entering. In the Jewish mysticism, from the mixture of the Jewish mysticism with the hermetic traditions of Egypt, they have generated the Kabbalistic knowledge, and the Kabbalistic knowledge was one of the most exquisite metaphysical knowledges which existed on the planet of the earth at that time. If you wanted to go into some secret esoteric knowledge, the Kabbalistic knowledge was, and partly here and there still is, formidably effective and clear on some things. Like this thing with the tithing, that you should give 10% and stuff like that. No, as a clear thing, you know, no bullshit, no, bam, you do like this and like this and this will give result and all that. And then these scholars, they knew. They knew the 99 names of God, why you put a thing around your arm or you do this or you do that. They knew numerology, gematria, this and that, a lot of things. And he says, woe to you. Because you have pretended that this is a secret knowledge, which only you should give to some very chosen people. And the final result is that you did not become enlightened by it. Because that's the truth. See, with Jesus, it doesn't go to bullshit. Oh, there are many Kabbalist rabbis who are enlightened. Funny. Jesus didn't find any. Jesus couldn't find a single one. He says, woe to you you scholars and scribes, because you have taken the key of knowledge, you do have the secret, but it doesn't work on you because you party too much or God knows what you do, and you have closed the door for the others, like some poor, sincere souls who would like to know and practice. They can't practice because you, you make it too difficult. You put too many conditions on it, and they have no access to that knowledge. So Jesus says, naturally, God is very angry because of this. And that's why it's not like, mm, bad boys, bad boys. He goes, woe to you. Spirituality in this country, in this time, is severely perverted. You have the Phariseans who are Phariseans, as the word says it. They are fakes. 
phony, baloney, and you have the teachers of the law, which are also wrong, profoundly, profoundly. It is something to think about very, very thoroughly, because some very bitter things have resulted from this in the Jewish environment itself. And Jesus could see them, and he said, be careful that your light should actually not be replaced by darkness. It's very meaningful, and it's a meditation on how social hypocrisy and fakeness mix with the actual love of God. He mentions justice and love of God. Those he mentions are the principles that were lost. Let us stop here for tonight. We have gone enough for this night. These are difficult paragraphs, very dense paragraphs from the teachings of Jesus. Thank you all for joining tonight. If questions will come to you, always in Q&As or in writing, you can address those questions. With this, we have finished for now. I hope to see you in the coming activities here in Agamo.